Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Sincerest thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. You know, I was considering the thanks that we always give to those who serve us with music. And we call it worship, and certainly it is. But heaven forbid we should think that worship ceases when the last note is played. Every part of the liturgy and service is worship. Prayer is worship. The taking of the Lord's Supper is worship. Giving is worship. And do we remember that preaching is worship? And how many of us think that we have some preaching and we have worship, right? Well, we sang some songs and now pastor's going to preach. As if they were two different things. Well, recognize, dear saints, we are talking about a singular event. It is all worship. And often in our corporate prayer at Harrison Hills, we pray for what? We pray for our time that is spent at the apex of Christian worship. That is what? The preached word of God. It is the mountaintop of worship. The liturgy is focused around that event. And really, if you think about it, every church service, every denomination, every religious gathering, it has an apex. It has a peak. And the question is, what is it? Now think about churches you've attended in your life. Take in the big picture, and you could tell me if you thought about it, where the apex, where the mountaintop peak of worship was in that service. And many churches today have elaborate music productions, right? Light and smoke machines, and well, besides the theological issues with that, what does that telegraph to the people is the peak? Right? It's so emotionally exhilarating with your senses on overload that the message to follow is it's almost a letdown. Right? It's less exciting. The ministry of music is made the peak. And others demonstrate the apex in liturgical readings or chanting. For some, it's built around the Lord's Supper. Right? There are some communities where church attendance only rises on the first of the month when they partake of the Lord's Supper because that's the peak for them. We have churches where giving is the peak, right? Every Sunday is a big production for the time of giving. They have a song during it, a small message about it, right? The ushers go around with the bags and they pray a blessing over the offering and we talk about how over or under they are on the budget every Sunday, right? Giving is the peak of worship there. But what is to be the center, the peak, the apex? It is the preached word. Everything else we do is meant to point to and lead to this. The Word of God is central. The application and the exposition of it is central. Now, all the other aspects are wonderful and they're necessary and fruitful for building up the body and the edification of the body. But if the Word were not lifted up and preached, the mountaintop was never reached. Beloved, preaching is an odd thing if you consider it. But it is the chosen vessel by which God has chosen to not only feed his flock, but to call a lost world to repentance. In fact, God is so singular in this method that Paul writes in Romans, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And Paul toward the church at Corinth, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased 
through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 21 times in Acts records the apostles preaching, preaching. Now, no doubt they sang, no doubt they, they gave, no doubt they joined in the Lord's Supper, no doubt they fellowshiped, but it was the preached word of God and the very foolishness of that message that God uses to save men's souls and to build his church. And that is why, as Charles Spurgeon so famously said, quote, we do not play at preaching, close quote. If you find yourself in a church where the man is a goofball up there, how then will the church grasp the gravity and power that God has chosen to put into the preached word? If the ministry of the pulpit is off, if it's unserious, if they play at preaching, what hope have those believers? They will starve, walking about malnourished, Yes, it's an odd thing, preaching, but God has proclaimed it the vehicle by which we move. What will sound as foolishness to the unbelieving, to those who are perishing, is life to the flock of God. So we're grateful to be able to gather under that banner this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week, we began a two-part series titled, Clouds Without Rain. Of course, this being a reference to Jude and to Peter, who both refer to false teachers, false leaders, those who preside over a false system of religious practice and belief as clouds without rain, clouds that come by booming and promising rain to a dry and weary people below, but they bring nothing of the sort. In fact, they lack even the very essence of what a cloud should be comprised of, that of water. They are charlatans and hucksters preying upon those who don't know better. Last week, if you'll recall, was Jesus' last moment of public teaching. This would be the last time that he spoke in the open air in such a capacity. Everything from here on out would either be individual contact or teaching his disciples. Thus, we looked with great anticipation to what Jesus would talk about because this was it. What would he say? What topic would he cover? What exhortation would he make? Imagine all the huge and weighty topics that could be taught about. So what was it? Beware. Beware. Meaning discern, watch, take heed, give intentional and earnest contemplation. To what? To who? Beware of the scribes. Now, by this point, we've done quite a deep dive into this sect represented in the Sanhedrin. You probably know more about the scribes than you ever thought you would. But how necessary was that? We know through Jesus' accusation in our text and through documented history what these men did. And we explored last week how they preyed upon widows. The schemes they used to confiscate their estates and property through legal maneuvers and manipulation. And the schemes were exceptionally wicked because of the power these men had. Because of the reverence that they were given. They were the top dogs. They were not to be questioned, right? They were the experts. If they said it was so, it was so. Of course, it was Jewish thought that the law was given straight from Moses, right? Right down the line, right into the hands of the scribes. They were the gatekeepers. They were the arbiters of truth. And they used that position... And that power to fleece the people. 
We know that Jesus had great compassion on those who labored underneath this apostate system, those who didn't know better, the victims of this false system. And of course, drawing the fiercest sword for those who were in leadership over this apostate Judaism. Jesus gave no quarter and no compassion to these men, did he? In Matthew 23, which is the same scene as our text in Mark, Jesus proclaimed woe after woe upon these men. He pronounced them sons of hell, even. Those are not soft words. Yet we needed to be reminded that Jesus was not born into an orthodox time. Judaism was completely apostate. It was not a vessel of God and his worship delivered to Abraham and Moses. It was a vessel of Satan. We recall John 8, 44. They said, we're of our father Abraham. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You're of your father, the devil. It was corrupt from the top down. And we need to internalize this because we need to see these men, these scribes, these religious leaders, as those who are presiding over a false religion. They were false teachers. If we miss that point, we're going to miss the vast majority of application and warning for our lives today. Jesus warned not only about their schemes, but he gave us markers on what to look for. What are the hallmarks of false teachers? Nothing has changed. It's still the same today. They love to be elite. They love to flaunt wealth. We talked at length about the robes and the tassels. They desired the trappings of power. They wanted the recognition and the praise of men. That they were glory thieves. That they were stealing the praise that was meant for God alone. They love titles. They're ambitious, prideful, greedy. We examine the phenomenon that the more apostate a religion or an individual becomes, the more we see the growth of edifices and symbology. When there's nothing on the inside, the outside explodes. When we do not have truth and reality inside, we must put on a show with peacock feathers. Where do we see this accentuated today? How many churches are putting on a big show or a big production? All the glitz and all the glamour, but the word of God is nowhere to be found. The gospel's not even hiding under a rock. It's all external. And that is what the people want. They want the show. They want the entertainment. John MacArthur was once asked if he thought the world was influencing the church. And he replied, quote, You don't think the world has infected your church? Cut out the fancy music. Turn on all the lights, normal light bulbs, please. Have a man stand in front of them and preach the word. Try and sell that. See how many come back next Sunday. Close quote. For many churches around our country today, that is true. Your thousands would whittle to hundreds, and those with hundreds would whittle to tens. Apostate systems prize the external. Of course, we see this pervasive in Catholic expression as well. Statues, relics, explosion of symbolism all over the place. They all have a way, as we quipped, of lengthening those tassels, right? Lengthening those tassels, external shows of supposed holiness. The false teacher will never be content to simply point to God. Because they who seek the glory and the honor, whether in the church or in the marketplace, Jesus warned, 
right? We recalled how much they hated John the Baptist, right? Because he called them out. He shamed them by living the opposite way of what they did. He, the skins he wore, his belt of rope, his strange diet was not because of poverty. They were to contrast the wicked and apostate leaders who paraded themselves. While they desired the glory, John declared that Christ must increase and I must decrease. That said by the greatest man to ever be born, according to Jesus. We saw last week what awaits those who prey upon the weak, those that use religion as their vessel to fill their greed and pride, those who would use faith as a tool to deceive and to destroy. Jesus declares that these will receive greater condemnation. Today we'll continue and complete part two of our series, Clouds Without Rain, and in fact, we'll finally complete chapter 12 of Mark's gospel. We still find ourselves in what feels like the longest Wednesday in history. All of these events that have happened within the temple, the attacks by the Sanhedrin, for the last six or seven messages have all occurred still right here on Wednesday in Passion Week. So with that, beloved, let's look to our text this morning. Mark 12, 41 through 44. Mark 12, 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury and how many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two lepta, which amounts to a quadrants. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those putting money into the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text once again today that you've given us. Lord, that our hearts might be changed. Lord, that we may be awake and alive unto your word, that we might be discerning, that we may stand straight in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, these are difficult words today as always, as your words are, but we ask, Lord, that you would cause them to find good soil. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, Justin Peters, he's a dear brother, and some of you have heard of him. He's quite recognizable in his powered wheelchair that he uses. He's kind of hard to miss. Well, Justin has a phenomenal expository teaching and preaching ministry. In fact, he'll even be at the Ladies Abide Conference at Answers in Genesis this year, which, by the way, we will be hosting virtually here at HHBC for the community. That's so exciting, so start thinking about who you can invite to this community outreach event. But Justin Peters was speaking to a church on matters of spiritual discernment, as he often does. And he was playing a clip from one of the famous TV networks that display many false teachers, TBN, Daystar, etc. And this clip was by one of those false teachers. And on the TV screen, this man said, quote, There is a widow who is watching Daystar, watching us right now, and you're sitting there and your thoughts are, Wow, I wish I was young again. 
and I wish I had a business, but I'm on a fixed income, and I don't know where I would get the $58. That's what makes it faith. That's what makes it faith. Close quote. Now, of course, this is wicked to the core. We know these men are predators. They're exploiting people for their gain. But today, beloved, we're going to see exactly the same event occur. If anyone tells you that Scripture is outdated or irrelevant for today, I assure you they haven't read it. It's all still happening. Our scene in our text today is going to be played out 10,000 times over in our modern day. So with that, let's look to our opening verse, verse 41. That opens with a scene that many have heard before, often called the widow's might or the widow's offering. So look with me to verse 41, beloved. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury. Now pause with me there a moment so we can set our scene, so we can get oriented to where we are. Now up to this point, if you'll recall, we've been in the outer court of the Gentiles, right? That large open area that's on the inside perimeter of the temple. Anyone was allowed to come and go in here. This is where Jesus cleansed and cursed the bazaars of Annas, right? Running out the merchants and all this was happening in the outer court of the Gentiles. But we notice here a change of location. And he sat down opposite the treasury. Now we've now gone one section further into the center of the temple. One step toward the Holy of Holies into what was known as the court of the women. Now it was called this because this was as far as women were allowed to proceed into the temple except for sacrificial purposes. It was also there that the giving took place. It was here, notice in our text, Jesus began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury. All right, now picture, if you will, in the court of the women, it was, it was surrounded by these large colonnades. And along the walls were 13 chests. There were 13 jars that were shaped, shaped like shofars, like trumpets for the giving. And nine of these jars were for mandatory or compulsory giving, and four of them were for voluntary giving. And they were all each labeled. One to pay this year's taxes, two to pay last year's taxes, three to pay for the offering of two birds, four to make a donation for other birds, five for work at the altar, six to purchase frankincense, seven for gold for the interior of the Holy of Holies, eight for money left over from the sacrifice of sin, nine for money left over from the transgression or guilt offering, ten for money left over from the bird sacrifice for a woman who had an issue of blood, eleven for offerings required after a Nazarite vow, twelve for money left over after leper sacrifices, and finally thirteen for money to be used for burnt offerings for Baptist's favorite, the general fund, the general offering. Now, I enumerate those out for you because we need to see the setup, right? The huge focus on money and giving. Now, Jews of this day, if they gave what they were mandated to give, they gave somewhere around 30% of their income and of their increase in various tithes and offerings. Now, today you'll hear numbers floated around about giving 10%, right? 10% is the standard. Beloved, we only wish that the American church gave 10%. There would be no lack in any of our churches. 
I've seen studies done that approximate what the giving would look like if the American church actually gave 10%. And the numbers are staggering. Given the wealth of our nation and its people, there should be no lack for God's work in our churches. But of course, that's not the case. Vast amounts of churches close their doors every month in the United States, largely owing to finance. And still we witness two extremes out there, don't we, in places that would label themselves churches. We have the prosperity side that teaches false doctrine about money. It worships and it seeks to acquire and to store up the very thing that God says can ruin a man. Symbols of wealth are symbols of God's favor on that person. Claiming that God desires you to be healthy and wealthy. But of course, you need to give, see? You need to plant that money seed to make this system work. And if it doesn't work, it's not because they're scam artists. It's because you didn't have enough faith. Or you have hidden sin that stopped God's blessing. Of course, this is unbiblical teaching. It's used to prey upon people. So we have that extreme, which pervades the television airways and the bookstores. And then we have the other extreme with pastors who refuse to talk about giving. They think it's uncouth or awkward. They don't want to talk about it, fearing they'll run off visitors who think the church just wants their money. So the sheep are never taught. They don't know about the joys of giving. Well, beloved, that's the beauty of expository preaching. When we get to it in the text, we preach it. We teach it. We don't get to skip over it. But you may be relieved to know that Contrary to popular teaching on this very well-known scene today, contrary to the endless sermons on the sacrificial giving of the widow and how we're to emulate that, this is not the meaning of this text whatsoever. You are not about to hear about giving until it hurts, right? Look at the widow. She gave her last two. That's the way it's so often taught today. But that's not what the context says. More on that as we dive in deeper. Now, still, as we see Jesus watching this giving, he's watching the how of their giving. Jesus is watching the heart. He's watching the motive. That's what matters, right? Yet when we see these 13 jars, these 13 trumpet chests laid out here, with nine being mandatory and four being voluntary, it begs the question for the Christian today. Is giving mandatory or is it voluntary? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Paul gives us an outline in writing to the church at Corinth, saying now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the very first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. Consistent giving to the church for the ministry is a directive of God to Christians. It's a command. That's the what, if you will. But wait, we don't stop at the what, do we? That's merely the command. You can have a legalist obey that command all day long, and yet their heart is a thousand miles from God. And thus Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there's the how 
attached to the what. There's the disposition of the heart. Be generous. Be prayerful about it. Don't be bullied or bludgeoned, either by your own legalistic self or by anyone else. Be free and cheerful. That is the how. But what does Jesus witness in our text, last part of verse 41? And many rich people were putting in large sums. Now understand, beloved, that this was a show. This was a parade. Everyone watching, right? Here comes Senior Fancy Pants, right? Long robe, big tassels, going to each and every chest, all 13, with great fanfare, right? And all these were coins. They were coins. So you could hear the loud plink, plink as the coins were dropped in. So for our rich men here, like, imagine the sound of a slot machine, right? Dropping out the coins. It's loud. You can hear it. Their giving was an extension of their long tassels. Look at me. But yet, how does Jesus say our giving should be? He says in Matthew 6, 3, that our giving should be done quietly, in secret. That it is a time of worship between you and God. Don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. You will notice that we don't pass a plate at Harrison Hills. We never have. And it is for this reason. Let no one's gaze, let not your chair neighbor's opinion, let not the temptation to flaunt come between that sweet time of quiet, secret worship and giving. It's to be discreet. You know, it's kind of funny. Some of our visitors have mentioned not even knowing about our little brown box in the back of the church that we have for giving. Because that's your time for worship. No one's eyes upon you, thus embracing and embodying Jesus' command for this form of worship. However, beloved, this is merely a side note for us. By witnessing the giving of the rich and the poor here, contrary to popular belief and teaching, this story, our text today, really has very little at all to do with the principles of giving. As much as I would love for this text to be about sacrificial tithing and giving till it hurts, right? I could run with that, but that's not the text. That's not what we see. So look with me now. Here enters a woman, a woman who has had much written about her. So let us examine what we see in verse 42. Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two lepta, which amount to a quadrants. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds on describing the coinage here, except to say it was basically two small copper coins, equivalent to a penny, so to speak. In other words, you can't hear the plink, plink in the chest as she drops them in. They're too small. They're too light. And Jesus is watching this scene. And he calls over his disciples, looking to verse 43 and 44. I'll read them as one. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those putting money into the treasury. For they all put out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Well, let me be honest with you. If you ever want an exercise in frustration, try reading 50 different commentaries on this scene. It is well and truly all over the map. 
Now, on the surface, it seems to jive with the popular teaching that this is some sort of teaching or admonishment to sacrificial giving, doesn't it? But we are reading that into the text. The text did not give that to us. The meaning up to this point in this text is what? Clouds without rain. False teachers, right? False systems of religion preying on people. So what is our context? Well, just a few verses earlier, Jesus was giving warning to the people. Beware. Beware of these people. Specifically, what are they doing? They're devouring widows. And now, just a few verses later, in walks what? A widow. Are we meant to draw that connection? Absolutely. Mark wants us to draw that connection. The lesson has not changed. Look at the bookends on this scene. Prior context is Jesus teaching on false teachers and false religions. Beware of these people. Now, chapter 13 on the other side that we're coming up on talks about the judgment that's going to fall because of this apostate system. It is one continuous thread. Jesus is watching this widow, and he is angry at what he sees. This widow has bought into this false system. And she's so desperate to buy that blessing, to buy that salvation. She is so entranced in this system that she's willing to give it all in this vain and false pursuit. Jesus is not commending this woman with his words. He isn't telling his disciples, hey, see this woman? That's how you should give, right? Give till it hurts, boys. Every last penny. That's not what the text is showing us. Jesus is describing what is occurring. He is not prescribing what she has done. He is describing and lamenting what this system has done to this poor woman. Now, the woman was not doing something necessarily noble. Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, it may be ignoble what she's doing. He merely says that this system is wicked and it takes everything, even from this widow. And you were commanded to care for widows. Our text says the widow put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now understand what this is saying. This is her final hurrah. She has given up. She is going home to die. She emptied her pockets. She's done. Jesus is saying, look at the system that does that. Beware. That's the meaning. Those two copper coins were worth a few meals. Do you even want to live? Do you have any hope? No. Give it all. Go home and die. This widow has been consumed. Broken down by this system. You are supposed to be caring for the widows, not leeching them, consuming them until they have nothing left and they just give up. And I've got news for you, beloved. That's not how Scripture describes giving. You are not expected to give 100% of what you have, which could be the only giving lesson or conclusion that you could draw from this. That would actually be immoral because now someone else is going to have to care for you when you could have cared for yourself. It could be quite self-centered to give away all that you have. So, beloved, we're not told that there's anything honorable in what this widow did. We don't know her heart. 
We don't know if she longed and waited for Messiah. We, don't, we have no idea about her inner motives. The only thing we do know about her attitude is that she had completely given up. Here, take it all. I'm going to go home and wait to die. We know that. We know that she had been horribly victimized by a system so wicked that in a very short time, judgment is coming. And no stone is going to stand upon another. This temple will be destroyed. The symbol of this now apostate religion. Beloved, I don't watch many movies, but one that I do enjoy is about the life of Martin Luther. It's simply titled Luther. I would recommend it to you. And I was reminded of such a powerful scene where a very poor woman in the town, she had a crippled daughter. And she actually kept her daughter in the woods to protect and to hide her from the shame of her condition. While Luther was still a Catholic Augustinian monk, he was serving in the town. And the Catholic Church announced a special indulgence from the Pope for one night only, that if you would drop a coin in the bucket, not only when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, they said, but for one night only, drop that coin in the bucket and give the scribe the name of any person and you would ensure their salvation. Now, of course, this mother could think of nothing more that she would want for her crippled little girl than to know that she would go to heaven. And so even in her desperate poverty, desperate poverty, she walked into the church. She dropped her coin in the bucket, and the scribe gave her a piece of paper with her daughter's name written on it. And she was so excited, and she ran to find Martin Luther to show her, show him what she had done. And there you saw fire in the eyes of Luther when she told him. Anger filled him. He took a coin from his own pocket and he gave it to her and told her to use that to feed her daughter. Salvation cannot be bought by any means. Luther was angry at the exploitation of the poor, preying upon the defenseless who knew no better, using the power of religion to indeed consume widows. There's nothing new under the sun. Jesus declares unto these people, woe. The false teachers of today, flying $40 million private jets with funds siphoned from lonely, disillusioned, and desperate people, woe to you. Woe to you. How will you escape the judgment to come? You who consume, you who devour widows. The very opposite of what has been commanded by God in the law. Religion, beloved, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. But these are clouds without rain. Promising health and wealth. But they only bring burdens and poverty and ruin. Beloved of God, we are to love what God loves. We are to hate what God hates. We are to be angry at what makes God angry. We're to rejoice in what makes Him rejoice. Understand that these clouds without rain brought down such wrath that God would destroy the very heart of the apostasy. Their end is destruction. There is nothing that we could offer to merit heaven's beauty. 
There's nothing we could give to be worthy of standing in his splendor. There are no coins that we could drop in to pay the ransom that was due for our pardon. The Lord declared to Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Beloved, may that be our offering this morning. What does the Lord require of you? But you, for you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let that be said of us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to this text with a heavy heart. Lord, as we see this scene replayed so many times in our life, Lord, even those who have grown up under these systems and known these systems and even fallen prey to these systems, Lord, we know that you are not mocked. Lord, we know that your place of worship is not mocked. Lord, that you are good and that your goodness demands righteousness and judgment. Lord, as we continue our walk through this Passion Week, we pray that our hearts would continue to be focused. Lord, as Calvary grows bigger in the mirror, Lord, we know that you are faithful. We know that you will attend to and abide by your word, that you will cause it to come to pass. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.